Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Ajnana Timurandasya Gyananjana Shalakaya Chakshuran Militam Yena Tasmai Shri Gurave Namaha Shri Chaitanya Manobishtam Stapitam Yena Bhutale Swayam Rupa Kadamayam Dadati Swapadantikam Vanchakalpatarubhyas Chakripasandubhyevacha Patitanam Bhavanipyo Vaishnavipyo Namo Namaha Jaya Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Advaita Gadadhara Shivasari Gora Bhakta Vrinda Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare 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 Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. So we are studying chapter 17, Mother Parvati curses Chitraketu. We are on verse 17. Welcome. So verse 17, Chitraketu said, so this is his first, he just got cursed by Parvati, um, Mataji. <laughs> And um, and how is he going to react? How, how would you react if you just got cursed for something you thought you were doing pretty uh, innocently or in service to Lord Shiva? You ever you ever been misunderstood in life? I think we can all answer in the except for Andy, we can all answer in the positive that we you know we we've been mis you know and and usually we tend to defend ourselves. And, and it may be appropriate in, in, in certain circumstances. No, no, I didn't mean that at all. Oh, my gosh, please forgive me. No, no, what I meant was, right? Um, there's an old song, Oh, Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood. Henry knows that song. Uh, I think it's from the animals. Um, but Andy might know it also. Uh, others weren't born yet. <laughs> Eric Burden and the animals. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. So, how you know what you know? If we were reading this for the first time, we would say, "How's Chitraketu going to react to this? What's he going to do?" So, we're going to find out. Chitraketu said, "My dear mother, with my own hands folded together, I accept the curse upon me. I do not mind the curse for happiness and distress. They're given by the demigods or here, Daivi Netra." As a result of one's past deeds. And Prabhupada writes that, actually, I think I might even end up right reading this whole purport. It's so amazing. Since Chitraketu was a devotee of the Lord, he was not at all disturbed by the curse of Mother Parvati. He knew very well that one suffers or enjoys the results of one's past deeds as ordained by Doiva Netra, superior authority or the agents of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. He knew that he had not committed any offense at the lotus feet of Lord Shiva or goddess Parvati, yet he had been punished, and this meant that the punishment had been ordained. Let that sink in for a second. He knew he hadn't done anything wrong, and yet the punishment had been ordained. A little bit more before we talk about that. Thus the king did not mind it. A devotee is naturally so humble and meek that he accepts any condition of life as a blessing from the Lord. So we'll get to that in a second. So punishment had been ordained. 
or as Srila Prabhupada once told uh, Peter Burwash, do not be upset at the agents of your karma. Right? So he immediately got philosophical, we could say, but I think it's even deeper than philosophical in the sense that he understood it in his heart. You know, it's one thing for us to quote a, a verse of the Bhagavad Gita or Bhagavatam and to somewhat believe it. It's another to really make it part of our lives, you know, a, a, a non-different from our life, practically speaking. And that, and that, so he immediately, you know, sometimes for us, we've talked about this before, it take, take months, it could take years or at least hours before we see something as Krishna's mercy or see the hand of the Lord. But here, he immediately, uh, punishment had been ordained. Now, Srila Prabhupada talks a little bit about our mindset. And he quotes, of course, this very famous verse from chapter, Canto 10, chapter 14, verse 8, that begins, Tate Nukampam Shukshamik Shamanam. A devotee always accepts punishment from anyone as the mercy of the Lord. Do not be upset at the agent of your karma. If one lives in this conception of life, he sees whatever reverses occur to be due to his past misdeeds, and therefore he never accuses anyone. How hard is that to do? On the contrary, he becomes increasingly attached to the Supreme Personality of Godhead because of his being purified by his suffering. Suffering, therefore, is also a process of purification. Suffering is also a process of purification. Hmm. Um, well, we can read one more, par- one more paragraph, probably, and then we'll start talking. Srila uh, Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur says, in this connection, that one who has developed Krishna consciousness and who exists in love with Krishna is no longer subject to suffering and happiness under the laws of karma. Indeed, he is beyond karma. The Brahma Sankhita says, Karmani nitahatikin tu chapakti pajam. A devotee is free from the reactions of his karma because he has taken to devotional service. This same principle is confirmed in Bhagavad Gita, Sadgunan Samatityaitan Brahma Bhuyaya Kalpate. One who is engaged in devotional service has already been freed from the reactions of his material karma, and thus he immediately becomes Brahmabhuta, or transcendental. Mm. And this is also expressed in Srimad Bhagavatam 1.2.21, Shiyante Kasya Karmani. Before attaining the stage of love, one becomes free from the, all the results of karma. Now that doesn't mean that things don't still happen to us. I've, expl- I've heard it explained two ways, that sometimes... As we make advancement, Krishna uses our karma to teach us lessons. So he could take it away, but sometimes he uses it. And, and other times we see that, yes, somebody is just in the lap of Krishna. Now, the lap of Krishna doesn't mean that it's just going to be, you know, rose petals falling from the sky. We see that in the obvious case of the Pandavas. But these things are there to glorify the Lord um, when, when we glorify the devotee of the Lord, when we see how a devotee reacts to them. So what an amazing reaction. And I think as we mentioned last week, Maharaj Prichit had the same reaction, right? It's interesting that Sukadeva is telling Prichit Maharaj's story because this pastime, 
because Maharaj Pariksha had a very similar reaction to Chitraketra. Okay, let the snake bird or whatever other magical um, concoction of that of the young Brahmin Brahmin boy, whatever. I'm going to uh, hear from the sages, sit down and hear the Srimad Bhagavatam. And no, didn't reverse the didn't reverse the curse, anything like that. So what a uh, <laughs> uh, glorious. So bhakti makes us look at things in a different way. This verse, Tate Anukampam Shukshamikshmano. Um we see things that happen to us as our karma and also as the Lord's mercy. So the whole, the whole uh, Leela in this case is almost like a love fest, you know. Krishna wanted to bring Chitraketu back home quickly. Parvati became an instrument for the Lord to, to do that. Chitraketu, so the hand of the Lord in, in everything. All the great sages that were present got to see this amazing example of a Vaishnava. Lord Shiva got to preach to his wife and to the sages about the amazing glories of a Vaishnava. And when you think about it, this kind of consciousness is the only way to attain peace. Right, you know, adopting a mode of goodness helps. Uh, you know, things like that. There's certain things that can help, but when they say bukti mukti, when Krishna Das Kaviraj says bukti mukti siddhi kami sakala ashanta, Krishna bhakta nishkam atta eva shanta, that that the uh, the yogi, the the karmi, the jnani, they are ashanta. They're not peaceful, but. Krishna Bhakta Nishkam Ataeva, but the devotee is. What does that mean? It means this. What we're what we're hearing right now in Chitraketu, it means this. It means that it doesn't matter what happens to them. They see it as Krishna's mercy. And as we're going to hear in a few verses uh, later, I know I'm kind of I'm, I'm somewhat skipping ahead because all these verses are so connected. But they, they, they see uh, heaven, hell, etc. But they don't see the dualities of this world, a, a, a paka devotee. And therefore, they're peaceful. Someone gives them a million dollars, they're peaceful. Someone, they lose their money, they're peaceful. They, they, they see the hand of the Lord. And so what can disturb them if they're seeing Krishna in their lives? So therefore, they're happy. Because as Krishna says, how can there be any happiness without peace? So if they're peaceful, they're happy. And we're going to hear that uh, in a few verses from Vishwam Purna Shukayate. So, so this is a very, very instructive part of the Bhagavatam. Mm, Prabhupada continues, the Lord is very kind and affectionate towards his devotees, and therefore a devotee in any condition is not subjected to the results of karma. A devotee never aspires for the heavenly planets. The heavenly planets, liberation, and hell are non-different for a devotee, for he does not discriminate between different positions in the material world. A devotee is always eager to return home back to Godhead and remain there as the Lord's associate. This ambition becomes increasingly fervent in the heart. Maybe someone can Google the word fervent, because that's a powerful word, because Prabhupada's choosing that. This ambition becomes increasingly fervent in the heart. And therefore, one does not care about material changes of life. 
Srila Vishwanath Chakrabarti Thakur comments that Maharaj Chitra Ketu's being cursed by poverty should be considered the mercy of the Lord. The Lord wanted Chitra Ketu to return to Godhead as soon as possible, and therefore he terminated all the reactions of his past deeds. Acting through the heart of Parvati, the Lord, who is situated in everyone's heart, cursed Chitraketu in order to end all his material reactions. Thus Chitraketu became Vritrasura in his next life and returned home back to Godhead. Fervent, having or displaying a passionate intensity. Wow. Thank you, Raghunandam Prabhu. So this is a theme that we're going to be hearing more and more. So questions or comments on this verse that we just discussed? Hare Krishna Prabhu. Yes, Prabhu. Uh, this stage is like the Brahma Bhuta stage that Prabhupada is also referring to in the purport. Only people who are on that platform can live like 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 life, their life like this even when there are reversals in their life but if i am going to be attached to the material stuff or the material world then it's going to be painful when such reversals happen and you've had experience is not you've had experience yes, <laughs> okay so what's what's your point so it's it, it depends upon where my attachments lie. Uh, if I am attached to the spiritual things and then it becomes easier for me to accept such reversals. And if it, it, basically it's an indication of where my attachments lie. Yes, yes. And like so many things we've talked about over the years, um, this is not a light switch. One day you wake up, Brahma Bhuta Prasanatma Haribol, right? It's a gradual process, correct? And so from wherever we are, right? You know, uh, Jay may be further along than me and Nandi Muki may be further along than anyone or whatever. We're all trying to go in the same direction. And the Bhagavatam, as we learned right in the very beginning of the Bhagavatam, it's, it's meant for the Paramahansas and also for those who want to become, <laughs> right? So this is very instructive to us. We may not be fully, uh, we may not be, well, yeah, we're not on the Chitra K2 platform, but this is also there to uh, help us gradually get there. And so we can, when these, when things happen to us in our lives, they may be obviously probably in most cases smaller than what happened to Chitra K2. <laughs> Um, we, we practice this. That's what we call it, sadhana bhakti. We practice having the right consciousness. We, that, and so that's what we, we, uh, want to do. Like, like, uh, I mean, uh, for example, I'm just thinking of an example. Um, so I'm trying to make sure I have enough funds so that I can retire and, and do full time service again. Okay. So what if all of a sudden, you know, somebody, I have a identity, you know, I don't, I'm not, Krishna, I'm not asking for this, uh, but I have uh, identity theft and someone, you know, cleans out my funds. So obviously I'm going to try to get them back by, you know, honest means and all that. 
but maybe Krishna, maybe, um, you know, someone was going to join me at work uh, a year from now when I was going to retire in six months and they become a devotee and they become one of the leading devotees in the movement and they make hundreds of thousands of devotees. Right. So who knows that Krishna may have had a, you know, Krishna had a plan um, that I didn't see. I, I, I don't see around the curve of Krishna's plans, you know, and therefore, uh, I think I've, used, I've quoted this before, that we walk with faith and not just by sight. Remember that? So that is uh, something that we are trying to cultivate, that we see things as Krishna's plan, especially things that are clearly beyond our control. And we uh, take shelter of Krishna. One of the big challenges that many people in the world have, and I think some devotees also, is that we have things that cause us anxiety, that cause us distress, and we take shelter of some kind of escape instead of Krishna. You know, whether it's, you know, Netflix or surfing the internet or, or you know, 18 gulab jamans or, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, and one thing that we, we're trying to learn is to not take shelter of escapes, but take shelter of Krishna in these trying times. And that takes some practice and uh, determination and often talking with another devotee and getting their, um, getting their help. Is that all right, Raghunandam Prabhu? Yes, Prabhu. Thank you. Thank you so much. So Chitra writes, in Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna tries to use a similar argument to exit the battlefield, but Krishna tells him that's cowardly. Can you please explain? Well, Arjuna wasn't, yeah, it, it, it's quite clear, actually, in one sense. Uh, Arjuna was trying to do his own program, as we, we say in Iskand. Prabhu, what's your program? What is your program? Uh, and Krishna was saying, no, no, do my program. And then he shows what his program is in the 11th chapter of the Gita, right? He said, the battle's already been taken care of. <laughs> you can take credit or not. So here Chitraketu is doing the opposite of what Arjuna did in those early verses. Of course, Arjuna is doing that to show us this perfect example. Because we are like the early chapter Arjuna, right? No, no, I'm going to do my own program. Krishna, I know you want me to go to the temple, but uh, I know you want me to read the Bhagavatam, but this, tonight's the Super Bowl. You know, come on, give me a break. So I'm going to do my own. And then by the end, Arjuna says, okay, I'm going to skip the Super Bowl. I'm going to read the Bhagavatam. <laughs> I mean, you know, just using modern day. But um, that's, so uh, is that all right, Chitra? Um, yes, yes. Thanks, thanks for um, for discussing that. It just seems that sometimes that attitude comes across as complacent. Which one? In, you know um, that. Oh, that we whatever. See our, yeah, yeah. Like, how do we differentiate? Well, that's a great question. Oh my gosh, that's a wonderful question, Chitra. Um, it's not. It could be. It could be a little tricky, right? You know, um, some things can look almost the same, but be very different. And I think that that would therefore go back to my point about asking another person that we trust, especially if they're more advanced than us in Krishna consciousness, 
and uh, saying, you know, I'm thinking of doing this. Is this, you know, is this coming from my ego or is this coming from, you know, trying to satisfy Krishna's desire? Um, and we can also be introspective, you know, try to really get sattvic, sit down peacefully, maybe take some deep breaths, maybe even close our eyes and, and pray to Krishna and say, Krishna, I'm thinking of doing this right now. Hmm, is this your desire? You know, we can also just by cooling down and getting more sattvic and then remembering Krishna's lotus feet, sometimes we get some indication of a direction. But generally, it's very good to consult with others, a spiritual master or the spiritual master's representatives. Um, because you're right, sometimes things can be look almost the same. Or it can be just like, oh, um, I'm waiting for Krishna to tell, like you said, complacency, right? That's just like, oh, whatever, Hari Ball, Hari Krishna. Right? Uh, and we can see that wasn't Arjuna at all, because after, after talking to Krishna, he wasn't complacent at all. He, he immediately wanted to get out and do his duty. But at first, he, wanted, he just basically said, I'm out of here. I'm going to go meditate. Krishna, you, good luck with the battle, and you have a nice day. <laughs> so that's a very good question, Chitra. It, it can be a little tricky sometimes to discern the desire of the Lord. That's one reason we have confidence. Okay? Oh. Yes. Is that Maha Mantra? Yes. Prabhu, um, I was trying to draw a difference between Victor Frankl's uh, I forgot the title of the book, Man's Search for Meaning. Meaning, you know? yeah, something like that. Yeah. So there he was focusing on what he's going to do after this, all this is over. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the concentration camp stuff and all. But Chitraketu uh, was slight, not even slightly disturbed. He didn't even pay attention like that. You know, I have to go through this uh, demoniac body and uh, all that. Nothing. <laughs> so that means, did he know? Uh, like uh, he, he's fixed on uh, Krishna. That uh, that's very uh, clear. But did he know that his uh, attachment to Krishna is not hampered by? taking a birth as demon. Well, did he read the Bhagavad Gita? <laughs> um, one would think so. Otherwise, why would be one accepted so willingly? Because um, we're going to read that verse. I think it's verse 23. What does it mean to not care about heaven or hell? It means that I'm carrying Krishna with me. Okay. wherever I go. Not just like, you know, who cares if it's a, you know, a five-year-old, a five-day-old sabji or, you know, goranga potatoes. Uh, you know, it's not, it's, it's, he understood that he, you know, he Christians with him all the time as a pure devotee. Okay. Yeah. And that, that's the meaning of ordained here, Prabhu, the word ordained, that Krishna is arranging this or like, how do we take it yeah, uh, Daivi Netra is the exact words. Um, I once did a study of this. I once gave a class in Chopati. I was so nervous that I was giving the class in Chopati. <laughs> uh, 
that, you know, because there's so many devotees in those classes, right? I mean, there's like the place is packed, right? So I studied it for probably like, anyway, several hours. And I, um, and then I think we also talked about this, was it last week about, or the week before that, about um, the different uh, levels of uh, suffering, mm-hmm. you know, that it's your karma, that it, and so I, I remember talking about providence and then trying to research what Prabhupada, how Prabhupada meant by providence. Um, and then ultimately Krishna's desire and Krishna's will, right? Um, so what was the word that you said, by the way? It was again? Ordained. Ordained, yeah. Ordained by whom is the question. Right. When you ordain something, a person ordains it. So I guess it could be ordained by, uh, by karma. Um, but generally, it's ordained by a person and therefore by, by Krishna. Uh, we also, if you remember last week, we read the passage from um, the 10th chapter of the Nectar of Devotion. Um, if anyone wants to pull that up, it was right in, um, uh, I see, I think it's in Expecting the Lord's Mercy. It's in, it's, it's in the 10th chapter of the, uh, I forget the subtitle of the chapter. And Prabhupada's quoting uh 10, 14, 8 of the Srimad Bhagavatam. And he, yes. and he says that we don't expect, a, a devotee doesn't expect to be free from their karma right away. Remember we gave the example of the fans still going around. Mm-hmm. But we still see that, okay, I have my karma and also this is, as a devotee, this is Krishna ordaining that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but the but the the part about seeing it as our karma is about humility and responsibility, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Responsibility that you know, and also not blaming Krishna. I mean, yeah. I mean, I was going to talk about this later, but maybe now that you bring it up, Prabhu. I, I think it's such an important point. Uh, I was going to bring this up in twenty eight and twenty nine. We're not getting very far so far, but we're still in one verse. But um, um. But we're cut. We're, this is all—they're all connected. All these verses and the purports are very similar on this theme. So I feel we're covering a lot of verses in this discussion. So what I wanted to talk about then is, you know, there's a book by this by this um, why bad things happen to good people. It's a famous book by a, a Rabbi Kushner. Kushner, yeah, yeah, and it's also a just a. Um, a, a a, a question that many people have, if there was a God, why do bad things happen? So oh, thank you. And rather than them, Prabhu has put the quote in the chat. Thank you. Um, which I'll read out loud in a minute. But let's talk about this thing. And I was thinking about this today, uh, yesterday when I was preparing for class. And great devotees simply don't think in terms like most people think. It, from a pure devotional platform, it's it's the wrong paradigm. That question is coming from the wrong paradigm for a great devotee. Why bad things happen to good people? The, it's simply not the question that they ask. They ask, how can I do more service in whatever situation I'm in? Okay. And for a non-devotee, that sounds like a crazy question to ask. Like, well, you know, first we should find out whether he's a nice person or not. And you're not, you, you bypassed that and just said, how can I serve you? I just want to serve you and please you. But that's actually the question that a, uh, uh, an advanced human being will ask. But it's, it's advanced. 
so I don't know how I, you know, when I'm asked out on the street by someone, I'm not sure how, if I would change my answers to something like this, but it really is for a great devotee. It's, it, they were like, why would you ask a question like that? Krishna's all good. And it's my, it's all my fault that I've been in this material world for so many millions of years. And my only desire is to serve. Uh, I don't care heaven, hell, happiness, and distress, one arm chopped off or, you know, uh, this or that, I just want to serve. Now that is obviously a uh, an advanced mindset. But if we have this mindset, we wouldn't like. Why would somebody ask that other question? Of course, as preachers, we we have to deal with that. But I was thinking about that yesterday. It's just a, it's a, it's looking through a total different lens. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Raghunanda Prabhu quotes. The tenth chapter of Nectar Devotion. A devotee should not expect immediate relief from the reactions of his past misdeeds. No conditioned soul is free from such reactionary experiences, because ex- until existence means conditioned suffering or enjoying a past activities. Now, if he would have quoted more, Krishna says something like, "But they should go on doing their devotional service." Something like that. Yeah. Right, right, Raghunanda Prabhu. Something about that. Like, yes, Prabhu. I will also quote that. Okay. Thank you. So it's such a exalt, but it, but because it's not easy to get to that consciousness we just said, and we may still be like, why do good things happen to why do bad things happen to good people? We're you know we're 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 still getting there. <laughs> we're not there yet. Is that all right, Mahamantrabhu? Yeah, thank you, Ru. Other questions or comments? Uh, Hare Krishna. Yes, Jay. Uh, last last week we uh, sort of discussed the similarities between Bhishma's instructions to Yudhishthira on the battlefield around suffering, and Bhishma Bhishma Pita mentioned that suffering is due to inevitable time. Time. Kala. I wanted you to uh, elaborate a bit more on that. Is that is that the same as karma? Because obviously karma happens in due course of time. Or what did he mean by calm, uh, by time, Kala? Gosh, that's such a good question. I, and I once gave a talk on that, like, you know, in a different lifetime. Uh, can do you, you know the, uh, it's, it's chapter, Canto 1, chapter 9. Anyone know the verses? It's towards the end of the chapter. Um, but I, I do think it's basically um, time. Now, you know, this, this, uh, yeah, yeah. this also has come up in a paper that I read, written by... Um, uh, what's his name? Um, Gopal Hari Prabhu, uh, disciple, uh, disciple of um, His Holiness Gopal Krishnamaraj, and the brother of Radhika Raman Prabhu. So he wrote all about this, actually. Give me a second. Um, specifically about Bhishma. I think I quoted it a little bit last week. And um, give me a second. <clears throat> okay, let's see. Bhishma. Uh, he writes, for example, the... Uh, okay, let's see. So... If it's karma, Bhishma rejects the idea that the Pandavas' distress is a product of their past karma. 
Indeed, throughout the Bhagavatam's narrative, the Pandavas' good character and spotless reputation are emphasized. Here, Bhishma points out that although the Pandavas always lived righteously, they nevertheless had to undergo immense distress. How could such pure-hearted persons be afflicted by so much injustice? Injustice. The doctrine of karma makes a person singularly responsible for his or her own fate. Fate. Bhishma, however, finds such a view of suffering to be unsatisfactory and proceeds to ponder other causes of suffering. Okay, I hope you don't mind. I know, well, you know, if I share my screen, it's a little easier for you to read along. I know when you read long passages, the tendency is to like start falling asleep or whatever. Uh, so let me share my screen and read to you out loud so that you can read along. Bhishma suggests that time may be responsible for you to steer suffering. Quote, and I think that whatever unpleasant Whatever unpleasant has happened to you is brought about by time, Kala, under whose influence the entire world, along with its rulers, are carried, just as clouds are carried in by the wind. Now, remember, this is a scholarly book. Uh, as we see in Rick, some uh, scholars' chapter, the Bhagavata's treatment of time is complex. Um, uh, let's see if I don't need to read the whole thing. Uh, but here it says, the motif of time as a wheel that crushes everything is a powerful and persistent image within the, within the Bhagavatam. Uh, let's see, go back to Bhishma. Now in the fifth canto, he quotes, uh, the wheel of time acts on those who are not devoted to Bhagavan and is death for the sinful. However, okay, so let, but let's see, usually I know he's going to go back to Bhishma someplace. Uh, undoubtedly, Yudhisthira was a dear devotee and relative of Bhagavan Krishna, so how could time affect him? Bhishma recognizes this problem, but asks rhetorically, can there be calamity in the presence of Yudhisthira, the son of Dharma, Bhima, the club holder, Arjuna, the carrier of the Gandiva bow, and above all, Krishna, the well-wisher? This verse resonates with the Bhagavad Gita's final text, which declares that victory, morality, power, and opulence was uh, always always accompany Krishna and Arjuna. Thus, Bhishma sees, seems to reject time as an explanation for the Pandava's suffering and turns next to destiny. Okay. The, the Bhagavatam, in the Bhagavatam, the cause of human suffering is frequently identified as daiva. Remember we saw daiva netra in, in our verse today? Bhishma, destiny or fate. Bhishma has already discussed karma and time as possible cause of Yudhisthira's suffering. Now he points to fate. Therefore, this suffering is all due to the power of providence, daiva. Um, now, let's see. It is difficult, however, to uphold such a clear distinction between karma and daiva in the Bhagavatam. The text presents destiny in a variety of ways. This is what I was trying to say before we turn to this. Three of which seem to occur most frequently. Destiny often refers to, one, the results of karma, two, the inevitable progress of time, and three, the will of the gods or of Krishna, Bhagavan. Anyway, it goes on. Uh, thus the Bhagavatam speaks of daiva either as the power of Kala, the result of karma, or the will of Bhagavan. As we have seen, Bhishma rejects karma and time as possible causes for Yudhisthira suffering. And so the remaining possibility here is the will of God. And then he goes into a whole explanation, which I won't discuss now. So time is one of the things that is mentioned, Jay. Um, along with others. And then what does he mean by time? Time can be connected with daiva um, and other things. But ultimately, a devotee sees the hand of the Lord. Is that all right? 
Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, thank you. Could you share this this text, if at all possible? I can. I would have to. Okay, I can put. You get the emails, right, Jay? Yeah, do yeah. yeah. So if you send me an email reminding me, I will send it out to everyone. It's a. It's part of a okay, book that was uh, put together by um, a scholarly book. Remember, he's writing for scholars. Um, put together by Krishna Shetramaraj and Radhika Raman Prabhu, and this is one chapter of it about uh, the origin of evil. Okay, are we ready to move on? So we probably will go through these verses a little more quickly because we've covered so much in our last 40 minutes of discussion on these topics. So text 18. Now remember who's speaking. Who's speaking? <laughs> yes. Deluded by ignorance, the living entity wanders in the forest of this material world. Where, what canto was a chapter of the forest of the material world? Anyone remember? Canto five. Yes. Enjoying the happiness and distress resulting from his past deeds everywhere and at all times. So here, they're, they're, they're getting their karma. And he says, therefore, my dear mother, neither you nor I am to be blamed for this incident. In this material world, neither the living entity himself nor others, friends and enemies, are the cause of material happiness and stress. But because, now of course that's, you know, you, we're looking at things from so many different points of view. We do know that we cause our happiness and stress by our activities, by our karma. But because of gross ignorance, the living entity thinks that he and others are the cause. This material world resembles the, resembles the waves of a constantly flowing river. Therefore, what is a curse and what is a favor? What are the heavenly planets and what are hellish planets? What is actual happiness and what is actually distress? Because the waves flow constantly, none of them has an eternal effect. And that's exactly our philosophy, right? That that only thing that is real ultimately is that which is permanent. Hmm. So here we're also hearing the emphasis on Krishna as the doer. And we know elsewhere that we hear that we have our role to play. Um, and I just thought this was so powerful. This Towards the end of the purport, Prabhupada writes, there is nothing like cause and effect for the surrendered soul. Srila Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur says in this regard that being put into this material world is like being thrown into a mine of salt. If one falls into a mine of salt, he tastes only salt wherever he goes. Similarly, this material world is full of miseries. The so-called temporary happiness of the world is also misery. But in ignorance, we cannot understand this. So if when you go to work on Monday and someone says, oh, how, how are you today? How are you? Well, they don't say Prabhu. <laughs> how are you today? So-and-so. And you say, well just waiting for the misery to come, <laughs> right? Or I'm swimming in, in an ocean of salt. <laughs> or, you know. Well, I was going to say I'm okay, but I know from our, my philosophy, from my faith, that I'm actually uh, just miseries around the corner. <laughs> see, see what they say to that. <laughs> what I've been saying lately, and it even throws people off, is that I've been saying, I'm feeling grateful. That's what I say. And then I try to think of Krishna as I say that. That Even that throws people off, but in a kind of a nice way. Because they're used to, they're expecting you to say, I'm fine, how are you? Right? That's like, right, yeah. 
Okay. Um, when one comes to his senses, when he becomes Christian conscious, he is no longer concerned with the various conditions of this material world. He is not concerned. Now, listen, wouldn't this be lovely? He's not concerned with happiness or distress, curses or favors, heavens or hell. He sees no distinction between them. Next verse. The Supreme Personality of God, it is one. Unaffected by the conditions of the material world, he creates all the conditioned souls by his own personal potency. Because of being contaminated by the material energy, the living entity is put into ignorance and thus into different conditions of bondage. Sometimes by knowledge, the living entity is given liberation. In Sattva Guna and Raja Guna, he is subjected to happiness and distress. The Supreme Personality of God is equally disposed towards all living entities. Therefore, no one is very dear to him and no one is a great enemy of him. No one is his friend and no one is his relative. That's, of course, as super soul. Being unattached to the material world, he has no affection for so-called happiness or hatred for, uh, or hatred for so-called distress. So that's another way to look at it, that it, um, uh, he's equal to everyone. He's not dear or enemy in the material sense. The two terms, happiness and distress, are relative. Since the Lord is always happy, for him there is no question of distress. Although the Supreme Lord is unattached to our happiness and distress, according to karma, and although no one is his enemy or favorite, he creates pious and impious activities through the agency of his material potency. Thus, for the continuation of the materialistic way of life, he creates happiness and distress, good fortune and bad, bondage and liberation, birth and death. And then, um, I don't know if we have, if we should get into this, but kind of a review of uh, the Bhagavad Gita here in the purport in the beginning. Although the Supreme Personality of God is the ultimate doer of everything, in his original transcendental existence, he is not responsible for the happiness and distress or bondage and liberation of the conditioned souls. These are due to the results of the fruit of activities of the living entity within this material world. By the order of a judge, one person is released from jail, another is imprisoned, but the judge is not responsible for the distress and happiness of those different people. It is due to their own activities. Although the government is ultimately the supreme controller, the justice is administered by the departments of the government, and the government is not responsible for the individual judgments. And then probably gives a really interesting analogy here. Another example of this at the very end, given in this regards, is that lilies open and close because of the sunshine, and thus the bumblebees enjoy or suffer. But the sunshine and the sun globe are not responsible for the happiness and distress of the bumblebees. <laughs> Very nicely worded. Um, and I guess just as a refresher, you all know this, we've discussed this, but I'll read straight from uh, Surrender Unto Me, just in case we need a refresher on the, how this all relates. How the living entity in the tight grip of material nature is the doer can be compared to the attempt of a small boy to lift a weight he has just seen his father lift. The boy first desires to lift the weight and then tries. He cannot possibly succeed. But his father sees a small boy's desire, stands above him, and out of affection does the actual lifting. Thus the father has actually lifted the weight, but he cannot be considered the only lifter. 
unless the desire had been expressed and the attempt made by the child, the father would never, uh, never would have helped and the weight would not have been lifted. The living entity should not, like the child, become bewildered by false ego and pride and consider himself the doer of activities that he has no ability to perform. That does not mean, however, that the living entity can avoid the responsibility of having performed the activity because it was he who expressed the desire, he who made the attempt, and he who wants to enjoy the fruit. When the living entity is ignorant of his eternal relationship with Krishna, he chooses his position as independent enjoyer, which in turn wields, welds him to material nature and places him under its control. Thus, he is responsibility for his own reactions. So any questions or comments on this point? I know we've covered it before. I mean, we've, we've, this is the 205th class. We've probably covered everything at some point. <laughs> Um, and Anandarupa has uh, put in some verses here about the five causes of action. Thank you very much for that. And Suganda has quoted from the, uh, oh, about time. I, I assume that that's time, verse 14 of the ninth chapter. Thank you. So shall we carry on? If, I mean, unless you have other thoughts on this. I thought I'd just read uh, from the, Surrender unto me to just refresh our memory on that example, which is a very nice example, isn't it? It's a very nice, um, very nice explanation. Yeah. Okay. Then let us carry on. Text 24. Oh, mother, you are now unnecessarily angry. But since all my happiness and distress are destined by my past activities, I do not plead to be excused or relieved from your curse. Although what I have said is not wrong, please let whatever you think is wrong be pardoned. So he's, so he's not asking for freedom from the curse, but he is asking to restore the relationship with Parvati and, and, and maybe not be excused from the curse, but be excused from the offense. Such a nice thing. Okay, you can do with me whatever you want, but I never want to commit Vaishnava Aparat. That's like a Vaishnava, a devotee's mindset. So what a, what an exalted consciousness. And Sukadeva Swami now, he's going to say to Maharaj Brikshit, O subduer of the enemy, after Chitraketu satisfied Lord Shiva and his wife Parvati, he bounded, he boarded his airplane and left as they looked on. When Lord Shiva and Parvati saw that Chitraketu uh, although informed of the curse, was unafraid. They smiled, being fully astonished by his behavior. Hmm. I, I read this today, non-devotee source, but uh, a little connected to what we just read and something that um, made me think. They, they, ask, they say that you can ask the question in general or in a specific situation, what would I do if I wasn't afraid? What would I do if I wasn't afraid? Because fear is such a, we say of the four, um, eating, sleeping, mating, and defending, that fear is sometimes as strong as the defending. Hmm. And we also know that to be Krishna conscious is to not have fear. Abhai or Abhai Charan, Abhai Charan or Abhai Charanaravinda. 
right? So what would I do if I didn't have fear? If I wasn't afraid to talk to that person, I wasn't afraid to try that, I wasn't afraid to do this in my life, I wasn't afraid to take shelter of Krishna, what would my life be like if there wasn't that fear? Now, certain fear, there's a book called The Gift of Fear. Maybe some of you have uh, read that, and it talks about it's, um, I remember we used to apply it to child protection, you know, that we do need to ch- train young children to be, you know, um, appropriately reactive if a stranger is starting to act weird around them or something like that, trying to hurt them in one way or another. So some fear is appropriately, appropriately applied. But when you sometimes fear, for example, surrendering to Krishna, right? We have uh, different kinds of fears. Um, so, uh, anything on fear or um, this point? Yeah, basically, when you ask this question, if there is no fear, um, straight thing comes to me is like they are more outward. That is, they are more free uh, uh, to uh, free. Uh, they are more free to speak anything, and then more direct, and they are more truthful. So yes, because yes. of good qualities, I see that. Very good, Shakshi Gopalpur. Yes, sometimes fear can really hold us back from doing what we want to accomplish in life, and especially as devotees. Now, there are things that we should... What are some things we should be fearful of? Fearful of Maya? Of Maya? What was Maya. that, Raghunanda Prabhu? No, you said Maya. Oh, Maya, yeah. I think I'm the... Big, yes, I, uh, thank you, Andy. That's what I was going to say. That was probably our biggest fear, to offend a Vaishnava. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, there are some things we should be fear, but fear is sometimes uh, this this thing I was reading from a non devotee source. You, you know, things that hold us back from being the kind of person that we want to be. So now we we do that in Krishna consciousness. The fear of really getting into kirtan, the fear of really fear of really you know spending our time in 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 associating with devotees or or you know whatever the fear of just not giving ourselves to service. Like that. Okay, so should we carry on then? 26. Thereafter, in the presence of the great sage Narada, the demons, the inhabitants of Siddhaloka, and his personal associates, Lord Shiva, who is most powerful, spoke to his wife, Parvati, while they all listened. And Lord Shiva said, my dear, beautiful Parvati, have you seen the greatness of the Vaishnavas? Being servants of the servants of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Hari, they are great souls and are not interested in any kind of material happiness. And then the next verse is a, a very famous, a verse that Srila Prabhupada was very, is very, very fond of quoting. If you want to memorize a verse, this would be one of them that I would recommend. Devotees solely engaged in the devotional service of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Narayana, Never fear any condition of life. For them, the heavenly planets, liberation, and the hellish planets are all the same. For such devotees are interested only in the service of the Lord. And in the beginning of the purport, Prabhupada writes that Parvati might naturally have inquired how devotees become so exalted. Therefore, this verse explains that they are Narayana Pra, simply dependent on Narayana. They do not mind reverses in life because in the service of Narayana, they have learned to tolerate whatever hardships there may be. 
they do not care whether they are in heaven or in hell. They simply engage in the service of the Lord. This is their excellence. They, they, they attain this by taking shelter of Krishna. Mm. So powerful. And then uh, let's connect this with 29. Because of, Lord, uh, Lord Shiva continues, because of the actions of the Supreme Lord's external energy, the living entities are conditioned to con- in contact with material bodies. The dualities of happiness and distress, birth and death, curses and favors are natural byproducts of this contact in the material world. And Prabhupada writes, those who are, this is towards the end, those who are not Narayanapara, pure devotees, must be disturbed by this duality of the material world. Whereas the devotees who are simply attached to the service of the Lord are not at all disturbed by it. And then the last sentence, because they fix their minds on the lotus feet of the Lord and concentrate on the holy name of the Lord, they do not feel the so-called pains and pleasures caused by the dualities of this material world. Very exalted consciousness. Very wonderful. By the way, don't be a little tricked. Uh, dualities here um, are kind of a bad thing, or, or, or they, they ex- have to do with material consciousness. And sometimes we speak of dualism as something good, the living entity and the Supreme Lord, because as opposed to monism or impersonalism or mayavadi. So we may use the same word in a positive way and in a different, totally different context in a negative way, just to make that clear. Because we do believe in dualities in that sense, you know, the, the, the living entity and the Supreme Lord too, that have a loving relationship. But the dualities of this world, happiness, distress, etc., that we try to um, transcend. Um, again, these points that we've made at quite some length in, uh, in our previous discussions, pretty much on this, but just this comes about by Krishna consciousness, not by, we can practice, we can practice being indifferent to happiness, distress, pain and pleasure, um, but ultimately, it comes naturally to a devotee whose mind is fixed on Krishna. Some questions or comments? Okay. Um, let's see something. Oh, what does Suganda put something? Vishnu Chakrabarti explains with an example. Just as a father sometimes mercifully gives a cup of milk to his small son, and at other times, mercilessly, give, mercifully gives him bitter medicine. At other times, embraces and kisses him. And at another time, spanks him when he is not naughty. So the Supreme Lord, who is like our father, knows what is actually good and bad for me. Hmm. Oh, so thank you very much. Anandarupa is being very thoughtful. There's noise in the house. Okay. Miseries are mercy of Krishna. Now that, you know, is not easy to understand, but that is what we're getting here. And and this is even harder, perhaps. They're so-called miseries <laughs> because they're not permanent. That doesn't mean that we don't have compassion to our fellow Vaishnavas. And when they something happens to them, we don't immediately say, Prabhu, this is totally your karma. 
What a great opportunity for making an advancement. Just get with the program. Um, we may, um, like we said many times before, to help someone come to the level of Tetenu Kampam, the verse that, that adopts this consciousness, we sometimes have to walk with them and help them realize it. But like pushing them doesn't generally work unless they really know, they really know us well, they really trust us, and they know um, a priori that we're, that we're only doing this for their benefit, then, you know, it can sometimes work. But it's, it, it's, it is a very deep, that verse, if that, that verse says, as we've spoken about at least four or five times, that verse says you, you attain the kingdom of God by having that consciousness. So going back to God is not an easy thing. And that consciousness is proof that you are ready to go back to Godhead. Jiveti yo mukti pade sadayabak is the Sanskrit. Uh, Ananda Rupa uh, Devi says, for example, when someone approaches asking for help in their suffering, we don't just show them beads saying, just chant, all, all will be okay. We can listen to them and offer help when appropriate, and of course, share teachings in relevant way. Beautifully said, beautifully said. That means we don't give them medicine. Um, so it, it's like, uh, you know, we want to have good bedside manners. That's what will help people take the medicine. But we also don't want to do, you know, we don't want to swing the pendulum the other way. We, we have such good bedside manners, we forget to give them the medicine. <laughs> So it's a, it's a good, healthy balance. And in the old days, we, we pretty much forgot about the bedside manners. <laughs> we just said, open your mouth. <laughs> Take this. Yes, uh, Maha Mantra Bru. You're muted, I believe. So I would like to read Silvishwana Chakrotis Thakur's uh, rendering of comment for this Tatten Kampam. Uh, this quoted in uh, Namrahasya Prabhu by Sachinandan Maharaj. He says, Srila Vishwana Chakravarti Thakur offers a deeper understanding. He says that both happiness and distress are result of bhakti. Mm. Happiness comes when bhakti is performed correctly and suffering arises when devotees commit aparadas or offenses. However, both the sweet and the bitter results are simply Krishna's mercy. It's just like a father who sometimes makes his son drink milk and sometimes bitter juice made from nimba leaves. The <laughs> devotee thinks, I don't know, but the Lord, like a father, knows what is good and bad for me. Sometimes he embraces and kisses me, and sometimes he slaps me. I his devotee, have no power at all over karma and time. He alone, by his mercy, makes me experience happiness and distress and makes me serve him. Wonderful. Thank you. And if anyone's ever had neem juice, you have an idea of what it's like. It is so bitter. Ooh. <laughs> it is so bitter. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let us continue then. Um, in text 30, 
Lord Shiva is continuing, as one mistakenly considers a flower garland to be a snake, we often say rope, right? But here it says flower garland, or experiences happiness and distress in a dream. So in the material world, by a lack of careful consideration, we differentiate between happiness and distress, considering one good and the other bad. Prabhupada writes, in this connection, there is a statement by Prabhodhananda Saraswati. Vishwam Purna Sukhayate. Remember we quoted that earlier? Everyone in this material world is distressed by miserable conditions, but Srila Prabhodhananda Saraswati says that this world is full of happiness. How is this possible? He answers, Yet Karunya Kataksha Vaibhava Tam Tam Goram Eva Stuma. A devotee accepts the distress of this material world as happiness only due to the causeless mercy of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. By his personal behavior, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu showed that he was never distressed, but always happy by chanting the Hare Krishna Maha Mantra. One should follow in the footsteps of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and engage constantly in chanting the Maha Mantra, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hari Rama, Hari Rama, 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 Hari Hari. Then he will never feel the distresses of the world of duality. In any condition of life, one will be happy if he chants the holy name of the Lord. So this is um, an interesting discussion because the mind, when it's some people's minds, at least, when we're in distress, we somehow think it's going to be better if we focus on it a lot, right? And we sometimes get on this little hamster wheel of always thinking about this problem and, and we're not doing too much to, to settle it. Now, we do have to deal with issues and things in our lives in a practical way. That's understood. And the last thing our mind often wants to do is get absorbed in the holy name when we're, th- when we're meditating on a stressful thing. But if we try it sometimes, it's amazing how... As this verse, this purport says, how it can put us in a very, it can, the holy name can give us a different perspective. And we can feel happy even when the material circumstances are messing up our lives. It's, it's, it's actually practical. This isn't just a pie in the sky thing, Srila Prabhupada is saying. It's actually practical. It actually works. It actually works. Now, again, that doesn't mean the problem is going to just poof, go away. It's more like we'll have a different perspective on it. And it doesn't mean also, like I just said, that we don't deal with it practically, but we don't obsess on it in an unhealthy way either, which is what we often do. We often obsess on things. And we're supposed to be remembering Krishna all the time. And instead we obsess on the negative challenge in our life. And again, that doesn't mean we don't deal with it, but we can deal with it much easier if we're calm if we're seeing it in perspective, you know, what, what is that saying? Uh, this too shall pass. Maybe a good way to uh, look at it or another, we could ask ourselves, is this going to be a problem a year from now? So sometimes we, our mind isn't very good at putting things in perspective. That requires a Christian conscious intelligence to do that. And I know uh, this is big talk, no action for me, because sometimes 
I, I, my, I, I go for a loop, as they say, when some challenge comes in my life. But I do know that this works. I, I have a friend once who had a terrible, terrible back problem. And he just laid on his back for hours and hours. And, and he said when he chanted, it's not like the pain went away or anything, but it just, it, it changed his focus. So he could tolerate the pain. You know, it, as a matter of fact, it's interesting. Um, in one of the next purports, uh, where is it? Now, the, in one of the next purports that we were going to, we were studying, um, here it is, in verse 37, Prabhupada briefly talks about, um, you know, people who can do some mystic power, some magic. And he writes that, uh, where is it? Being protected by the Supreme Personality of God, a devotee is always powerful, but a devotee does not wish to show his power unnecessarily. However, when a less intelligent person has some power, he wants to use it for sense gratification. This is not the behavior of a devotee. So I won't mention the name, but I, when I saw this, I was thinking of one uh, sadhu who... Devotees may question whether the person is a sadhu or not. And I, like I said, no need to mention the name. And I went to their website and they talked about all the different miracles that the sadhu did. You know, healing this and healing that. And, and you know, um, I got shot by a bullet and the bullet dissolved after a few weeks all by mystic power. of. So whether those are true or not, it doesn't really matter to a devotee, um, but a uh, we would have even if we had so all these different powers, we would first of all we as Prabhupada says here we wouldn't want to show off. And again, I, I don't want to criticize, but we wouldn't want to show off our powers unnecessarily, and we would also have a very different measuring stick of what is actually a power. Because when someone asks Srila Prabhupada, where, what, is your, what are your miracles? What are your yogic powers? And then he turned to the group of, at that time, Western devotees sitting on the floor and said, this is my mystic power. They were hippies and now they're happies, you know, or something along those lines, right, that, they've, that we've taken to Krishna consciousness. And that really is the power. The real power is the power of love, the power of bhakti. So I, how, do, I don't, how do we get into that? Because I skipped ahead a lot of verses, but uh, <laughs> uh, I thought I would mention that. Oh, because we were uh, talking about chanting. By the way, at the very end of that purport um, in 30, the mind is the medium in both dreams and wakefulness and everything created by the mind in terms of sankalpa and vikalpa, acceptance and rejection is called manodharma or mental concoction. So... You know how much we have, you know, we should try to come to this understanding. We are, when we're guided by our mind, we're just being led around by a non devotee <laughs> and someone who's got all kinds of concoctions in their brain. I mean, concoctions that are influencing us. Our mind is not necessarily our friend. So it's accepting and rejecting based on a mental concoction instead of based on Krishna consciousness. Any comments on that?
Hare Krishna Prabhu. Yes, Nandimuki. I I'm very grateful for you mentioning about this, this uh, obsessing with the duality of happiness and distress. Mm. And also in connection with what we have previously discussed about fear, um, I think this obsession with the duality of happiness, distress, creates much more amount of fear mm. than the duality of happiness and distress itself. Very nice point. Um, yeah, for example, if, if you're just been obsessed with having having to obtain something then uh before you attain obtain that something you have a lot of anxiety and when you're having that something you also have a lot of anxiety of losing it <laughs> yes and yes. after all, when you actually lost it, you will be in so much grief. Yes. And even uh, you want to revenge or do something. So I think this obsession with the duality of happiness, distress, actually carries away, um, actually uh, can, like confine us in, in uh, focusing narrowly on uh, obtaining happiness and distress instead of uh, broadening our vision to look beyond uh, just to the duality itself but the origin of happiness and distress mm. you're a real philosopher Nandimuki that's uh, very nicely said very nicely said and, and, and the reality is that Literally, there's millions of human beings that just all day long are on their monodharma, um, accepting and rejecting according to mental concoctions, thinking to accept happiness and reject distress, and not ever being able to transcend and experience real happiness. Well said. Something that you said while you were talking reminded me of... Um, one of the reasons why I bought a 2005 used Prius instead of a new car. <laughs> you know, I just figured that, well, if it gets dinged or something happens to it, I'm not going to get all worked up about it. <laughs> Whereas if it was a new car, I might be uh, really, oh, no, I can't believe my new car just got a dent. Ah, you know. <laughs> so now I'm not saying that's very spiritual. I'm just uh, telling you <laughs> the reality of what I uh, what I went through sometimes, yeah. Um, Jay has put in the, a famous part of Viktor Frankl's teachings are about the, the between the stimulus and the response, there should be a pause. And we should decide on how we react. There's so many stimuli that happen to us in our life, whether our child comes home with a bad grade or, or a ding in the, our new car or our, you know, um, our... Uh, um, someone at work uh, throws out the salad that we had in the refrigerator at work or, you know, whatever. So many things happen. How do we react to the, those stimuli um, is, is important and probably one of the main teachings in that book. Um, I don't mean to pop your bubble too much, Jay, but, uh, or anyone, 
but there, there's some criticism of Victor. It's not a big deal, but uh, apparently records show that um, he spent a very little amount of time in uh, concentration camps. Um, although he kind of hints in the book that he spent a lot of time there, like some days, apparently, uh, according to um, Yogeshwar Prabhu, who's a, a scholar on the Holocaust and has written s- several books on it. But it doesn't take away from the efficacy of um, of some of the points that he's making. It's just, uh, I probably shouldn't have even said it. I hope I didn't ruin your day, Jay. <laughs> Because it is, a, it is a good read, and, he, and it is a, a good point that he makes there, especially about the stimulus response thing. Uh, yeah. And he has uh, his type of therapy, isn't it called logotherapy, I think? The, uh, but he, the kind of uh, therapy that he applied. Yeah. Okay, uh, shall we carry on? Thank you, Nandi Muki, for that uh, very helpful uh, points that you made. And um, Suganda has put uh, the point about uh, beating our mind with shoes and brooms. <laughs> Another way is to neglect the mind sometimes. We've talked about that in the past. Okay, let us carry on. we got 11 more minutes, and we are on 32. Is that correct? No, 31. 31. 31. 31. Persons engaged in devotional service to Lord Vasudev, Krishna, have naturally perfect knowledge and detachment from this material world. Therefore, such devotees are not interested in the so-called happiness or so-called distress of this world. And so this is the main point, and it's uh, that, you know, we should remind, if we develop our love for Krishna, if we chant nicely, if we read the Shastra, if we worship the deities, we will naturally get knowledge and detachment and be equipoise in happiness and distress. And then Prabhupada proves it by quoting this famous verse in one canto one chapter two verse number seven. Hmm. Prabhupada writes the speculative philosopher tries to understand that this material world is false by cultivating knowledge, but this understanding is automatically manifested in the person of a devotee without separate endeavor, without separate endeavor. Vasudeva Bhagavati Bhakti Janayat Yasu Vairagyam Gyan. Jana yat yasu vairagyam ganam cha ahitukam causelessly comes to the devotee. Very, very important point. Earlier it says a devotee does not need to cultivate knowledge to understand the falsity or temporary existence of the material world because of his unalloyed devotion to Vasudev. This knowledge and detachment are automatically manifest in his person. That doesn't mean we don't read the Bhagavad Gita, read the passages in the Bhagavatam that help that teach these things, but we get the knowledge, we, it becomes realized knowledge by dint of our bhakti. Otherwise, they just, people just think that they're liberated. Therefore, Prabhupada writes, therefore, unless the so-called jnanis take shelter of Vasudev, their speculative knowledge is imperfect. They simply think of becoming free from the contamination of the world but because they do not take shelter of the lotus feet of Vasudev, their knowledge is not is impure. Okay, it's an important point to know in our Krishna consciousness development. Krishna makes this point in chapter seven of the Bhagavad Gita quite clearly. 
the next verse, 32. Neither I, Lord Shiva, nor Brahma, nor the Ashvini Kumaras, nor Narada, or the great sages who are Brahma's sons, nor even the demigods can understand the pastimes and personality of the Supreme Lord. Although we are part and parcel, although we are part of the Supreme Lord, we consider ourselves independent, separate controllers, and thus we cannot understand his identity. He holds no one as very dear and no one as inimical. He has no one as his, for his relative and no one is alien to him. He is actually the soul of the soul of all living entities. Thus, he is the auspicious friend of all living entities and is very dear and dear to them. So isn't that interesting? So you, we have to, if you look at this, you might say, huh, what? It says no one is dear, no one's inimical, no one's his relative, no one's alien. Then it says he's a friend of everyone and he's dear to everyone. So now we, we know the answer to this. The first part is talking about material relations and people's entanglement in the material world. And the latter part is talking about the existential reality that Krishna loves everyone. He's everyone's friend. And everyone, especially when they take the bhakti, can be dear to him. And the next two verses. This magnanimous Chitraketu is a dear devotee of the Lord. He is equal to all living entities as is, and is free from attachment and hatred. Similarly, I am also very dear to Lord Narayana. Therefore, no one should be astonished to see the activities of the most exalted devotees of Narayana, for they are free from attachment and envy. They are always peaceful, and they are equal to everyone. And we talked about why they're always peaceful, because they see Krishna's hands in everything. Sri Sukadeva Goswami said, O king, after hearing the speech by her husband, the demigoddess Uma, the wife of Lord Shiva, gave up her astonishment at the behavior of King Chetraketu and became steady in intelligence. The great devotee Chetraketu was so powerful that he was quite competent to curse Mother Parvati in retaliation. For, but instead of doing, of doing so, he very humbly accepted the curse and bowed his head before Lord Shiva and his wife. This is very much appreciated, to be appreciated as the standard, standard behavior of a Vaishnava. Prabhupada writes, Chitraketu very sportingly felt that since the mother since the mother wanted to curse him, he could accept this curse just to please her. So that's an interesting. He said one reason he accepted the curse was to please Parvati. This is called Sadhu Lakshanam, the characteristic of a sadhu, a devotee. As explained by Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Trinadapi Sunichena, Torodapi Sahishnuna. A devotee should always be very humble and meek and should offer all respects to others, especially to superiors. Being protected by the Supreme Personality of God, a devotee is always powerful. Oh, and then we read that part, but he does not show his power. So just, <laughs> he accepted the curse to please the person who cursed him. This is like, Seriously advanced mentality. Seriously advanced mentality. Isn't it? It's really amazing. Being cursed by Mother Durga Bhavani, the wife of Lord Shiva, that same Chitraketu accepted birth in a Jamaniac species of life. Or those still fully equipped with transcendental knowledge. Well, there's the answer. I think it was uh, Mahamantra asked the question before. 
Did he carry that knowledge with him? Although still fully equipped with transcendental knowledge and practical application of that knowledge in life, he appeared as a demon at the fire sacrifice performed by Twasta, and thus he became famous as Britrasura. My dear King Pariksit, you inquired from me how Britrasura, a great devotee, took birth in a demoniac family. Thus I have tried to explain to you everything about this, and we might add in many, many chapters. Right? And now let us hear the Shruti Fal. Oh, Chitraketu was a great devotee, Mahatma. If one hears this history of Chitraketu from a pure devotee, meaning Srila Prabhupada, uh, the listener is also, uh, also is freed from the conditioned life of material existence. And Prabhupada writes, the historical incidents in the Purana, such as the history of Chitraketu explained in the Bhagavata Purana, are sometimes misunderstood by outsiders or non-devotees. Therefore, Sukadeva Swami advises that the history of Chitraketu be heard from a devotee. Anything about devotional service or the characteristics of the Lord and his devotees must be heard from a devotee, not from a professional reciter. This is advised herein. Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's secretary also advised that one learn the history of Srimad Bhagavatam from a devotee. Yaha Bhagavata Pada Vaishnavera Stane. One should not hear the statements of Srimad Bhagavatam from professional reciters, or else they will not be effective. Quoting from Padma Purana, Sri Sanatanga Swami has strictly forbidden us to hear about the activities of the Lord and his devotees from the mouths of non-devotees. Avaishnava Mukam Girnam Putam Hari Katam Ritam Shravanam Noiva Kartavyam Sarpoch Chishtam Yatapaya. One should not hear anything about Krishna from a non-Vaishnava. Milk touched by the lips of a serpent has poisonous effects. Similarly, talks about Krishna given by a non-Vaishnava are also poisonous. One must be a bona fide devotee, and then he can preach and impress devotional service under his listeners. So it's not a material thing. It's not, a, it's not even a scholarly thing. It's a devotional thing. And many people, as we know, didn't recognize Krishna when he was on the planet. It takes love to understand someone, isn't it? It takes love to understand someone. So Prabhu's, we have finished. Oh my God, it feels like we don't want to leave Chitraketu and and Narada Muni and uh, and uh, you know and, and Vitrasura and Indra. <laughs> it was a long, wonderful trip. <laughs> Wasn't it? It's like major, major chapters. Gosh, and then we only have two little chapters left of the Bhakti Vaibhava. Is there one more verse? Did I miss a verse, Jay? Yeah, this uh, text. One, oh, yes. One who rises from bed early in the morning and recites this history of Chitraketu, controlling his words and mind and remembering the Supreme Personality of Godhead will return home back to Godhead without difficulty. That is the Shruti Fal, the uh, benediction given. Thank you for that, Jay. So, our time has come to an end for today. Um, and we will send out the homework for the next uh, two chapters. But it's uh, it's amazing. We've actually almost finished the Bhakti by Bhava. So, and I think I told you that uh, anyone who's 
attended or listened to uh, on, online 50% of the lectures that they will get a Bhakti Vaibhava degree. We're giving out um, a ISKCON of DC Bhakti Vaibhava degree, uh, not the ISKCON, ISKCON one, because that takes a lot of tests and homework, which I wouldn't have had time to administer. Um, but you can also, we could talk about how you could still attain that since now you've gone through the Bhagavatam. But uh, thank you very much. Uh, you, you're all amazing that every week you, week in and week out, you're here hearing the glories of such a wonderful book. One of the most important um, book for Gaudiya Vaishnavas, Srimad Bhagavatam. So thank you. Thank you. Hare Krishna. All glories to Srila Prabhupada.